Praise the Lord. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Aren't you glad you're a believer? Man, we're believers around here. And not just casual believers, man. We found out uh, that it's not just casually believing. It is laying hold on what God has said that unlocks things for us. I need some things unlocked. And I'm expecting here in the next few minutes for God to do something in your life that's going to be life-changing. That's what he's always got on his mind, you know. He's really regularly ready to do major change in our life and do something for us that's going to be a permanent thing. And I know that would be good for you just like it would for me. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We've been having some uh, amazing times. These are extraordinary days, not just these days of meetings, but the days that we're living in. Extraordinary times. And uh, we're headed into days that are even, I believe, even more extraordinary. I've had the Spirit of God over the last several months kind of focus my attention in a particular way that he's given me the liberty to talk to you about here this morning. And um, a good bit of it is my own personal testimony, which I rarely really talk about in much detail uh, as far as what I came from. Our real testimony, scripturally, our testimony is not what we were, but who we are. That's our real testimony now that we're in Christ. But all of us have a past, and I've had the Lord really focus my attention in a way because of the things that I believe the body of Christ is now headed into. All of us can see things, not only from the perspective of the past, but the perspective of what is just out ahead of us. There's something about the Spirit of God. He knows how to lead us and guide us into the truth and to prepare us for the days that are before us. Glory to God. We're not designed or we're not left prey to whatever's coming down the road at us. We've got the Holy Spirit on the inside of us to make us ready, prepare us for the things that are right before us. And uh, that's really the direction God's given me to talk about. And to do that, I want to start with something that happened in the Gospel of Luke. If you brought your Bible, open it to the first chapter. Where we want to read, I want to read to you what, what happened when an angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Zacharias. Zacharias would be the father to John the Baptist. And uh, there was some things that had to be positioned for Zacharias for what was about to happen and what John's role was going to be in Jesus coming on the scene and things changing as radically as they would. So that's where we're going to start. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and uh, I'll begin in verse number 11, where he says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
He will go before him, referring to Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. I want you to notice that terminology or that phrase, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then here's a quote that comes directly from the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Now watch this last phrase. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I want you to say that, to make ready a people prepared. At this point in time, in uh, Israel, this was a, uh, a dark time. It had been hundreds of years since a prophet of God had walked the streets of Jerusalem and God spoken through a prophet to this nation. It had been hundreds of years. They were in a dark time. Their history at, at this point or their condition at this point in history was rough. They were uh, occupied by the Romans. God bless the Italians. We love the Italians. How many Italians do we have here? I don't want to talk bad about you, but they were rough, man. They, were, they occupied Israel, and we won't go into what all happened, but uh, it, was, it was tough. Israel as a nation spiritually was distant from God. Governmentally, they were distant from being able to control their own future. Things were dark. They were in a dark time, but God wanted to do something in the middle of this dark time, and he was sending a prophet of God, this man John. And Zacharias is hearing about this, and God is positioning for Zacharias what his own son was going to do. He was going to prepare, or let's say it this way, the way he said it, he was going to make ready people prepared for the Lord. John's assignment was clear. And it was in preparation for the ministry of Jesus, man. Jesus was about to change everything in history for everybody forever. I mean, everything. You know it did. Everything changed with Jesus. I mean, the calendar changed with Jesus. Everything before him was B.C. Everything after him is A.D. Everything in humanity changed when Jesus came on the scene and John was part of preparing for that to happen. And here's what the Lord said through this angel. It would be the spirit and power of Elijah. Let's look at Elijah just for a moment. Let me talk to you about his situation because he was also significantly used by God in a very dark time in Israel's history at the point that the prophet Elijah, who really is one of the most colorful people in the entire Bible, man, he was wild. You got to love Elijah, but I'm not sure if we would have been real friends with Elijah. He was just a wild kind of man. He just, anyway, you don't care, but he was wild. But he, he was used by God in a very difficult, dark time in Israel's history also. Our introduction to this prophet Elijah is when he 
shows up in the court of Israel's king, King Ahab, a wicked king. And the very first thing we hear from Elijah at all is when he declares to King Ahab, there will be no more rain in Israel until I say so. And he turned around and walked away. And sure enough, just like Elijah said, it stopped raining and it stopped for years. Israel was going into a catastrophic economic crisis, man, when your entire society is pretty well based on agriculture and there's no rain for three years, man, you've got some serious trouble. And Israel had gone into this trouble because of wicked King Ahab and his even more wicked wife, Jezebel. I mean, think about the name Jezebel. Something about Jezebel just sounds wrong. I mean, you don't even name your dog Jezebel, do you? I mean, I say that as if I know all of you that well, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that about you because it would say some dark things if you named your dog. Anyway, we don't care. But um, Ahab and Jezebel... These were some wicked people, and they were leading Israel. The Bible declares and talks about Ahab as this wicked king, but Elijah confronted Ahab and would ultimately confront what was going on inside of Israel. And what was going on? Well, one of the major things that was happening is in Israel is they were worshiping now, not Jehovah God, but many of them were worshiping a demon god, a demon god named Baal. And they had put up altars to Baal and various structures to, to Baal all over Israel, and Israel was chasing after this demon god. They were in trouble. It was dark. God didn't want it, and God didn't like it. So something's happening. Well, some time passes while this drought is on, and the Spirit of the Lord speaks to Elijah once again. Because of the word of the Lord, Elijah confronts and actually lays out what was going to happen on a particular day. He said, and he called all of Israel together, Elijah did, and he called together with him on top of Mount Carmel, all of the prophets and priests to this demon god Baal. 850 of them all together. There's Elijah and all of the prophets and priests of Baal and uh, others in Israel around and witnessing what was about to happen. And Elijah says this, he said, I'm going to call on my God and you will call on your God. And the God who answers by fire is the true God and who's ever serving the false God is going to die today. Want to play? <laughs> and so they began. Elijah gave them first preference. You guys go right ahead. And they began to chant their chants and call on their demon God and nothing was happening. Several hours passed. They were still chanting and dancing and trying to conjure up some kind of action. Nothing's happening. And Elijah, you got to love Elijah and so many things about him. I, 
I just, I just love his, his way of handling things because at this point when they were dancing and chanting and calling on their God, he, he gave them a recommendation. He said, you know, it's possible that your God is gone on vacation or he can't hear you. And possibly you need to shout a little louder. And you know, apparently they all thought that was maybe a good idea, so they did. They began to shout even louder. This went on for hours longer, and the day was now getting late in the day, and Elijah then began to build an altar. And there's a lot of details and some amazing things we could study if we would take the time to do it as to what was going on even as he built this altar. But he built an altar, dug a trench around it, puts, built it from stone, and then puts, puts wood on top of that, and then takes the pieces of a sacrificial animal and lays this on that altar, pours water all over all of it, fills the trenches. It's, it's quite a sight. He's busy doing all of this while the chanting and now the cutting and the bleeding is going on. We've now got hundreds of chanting, tired, screaming, bleeding, demonized prophets and priests of the demon God still waiting for Baal to show up. Late in the day, finally, Elijah knew that he just needed to finish the business at hand, and he prayed a real simple prayer. And in it, he included the idea of saying, God, that all of Israel would know that you are God. Here is this offering. And out of a cloudless sky came the fire of God. <laughs> Dear Lord, I would love to have seen this. But God's fire come down and whatever it looked like, it evaporated all of the water. It was a steamy deal. And then it burned up the offering, the wood, the stone, everything left only a big black spot on top of Mount Carmel. God had answered by fire. Glory to God. And all of Israel knew, and now all of those demonized prophets and priests also knew who the Most High God truly is. And then they went about the business of killing. <laughs> and I, I know a lot, of, a lot of the Old Testament's rather R-rated, actually, <laughs> because it was a gruesome mess. 850 of them were slaughtered that day. Now I realize love of Jesus and all that, we, we don't really want to spend a lot of time on that, and there's some explanation as to why it was as rough as it was. But we're not going to go there. Just enjoy the fact that God delivered Israel, and that demon God was proven wrong. Glory to God. God does things in dark times of history to those that will seek him and look for him. God has always had a plan for Israel, but the plan for Israel was not merely for Israel. The plan for Israel was for the body of Christ. The plan that God had for Israel was to bring a Messiah, for Jesus to come on the scene. So what God was doing in Israel in the days of Elijah and what he would then do in Israel in the days of John 
was to deal with the darkness of the day so that the light would dawn. Something very powerful about this. This is a manner that you find throughout history in the way God handles things. And so I, I want to fast forward in history to when I began to need to find out about Jesus myself. Because that was also in the early or late 60s, actually early 70s. I was born in 1954, so in the late 60s, I'm still a young guy. By the 70s, I'm a teenager. And the world was then also a very confusing place for a guy like me. I grew up in Southern California. I was a beach guy. I surfed, I snorkeled, I would spearfish, I was active guy. But early on, because of the, the things that were happening in Southern California, and certainly not just Southern California, but that's the reference that I have to give you, you know, there was uh, also a lot of the, the drug scene was already quite big. And it, for me, it started quite early. 11 years old, I started doing drugs. And uh, that progressed on for several years. But in 1967, prior to me really coming on to a lot of things and being aware of a great deal, 1967 was itself specifically a pretty dark time in the history of my nation and really the history of a lot of places around the world. It was in 1967 that Apollo 1 lost several of our astronauts in an explosion right on the launching pad. It was in 1967 that American troops were in, uh, moving into the Mekong Valley and Delta area of Vietnam. We were neck deep in a crazy war in Vietnam, a war that people didn't seem to have the will enough to win. Soldiers were lining up across the border of Cambodia, but they were not being given enough direction and leadership to actually win this war. And there's crazy stories of what soldiers were instructed to do, or airmen. A friend of mine was a jet fighter pilot in the Vietnam War, and he told of one time, one of many times, moving up into a particular hot zone and was given a target on the left side of a, of a river that he was, was moving up quickly in order to unload onto this target. And he said he could see in the distance, he could see that the real target was not on the left side, but the real enemy was over on the right side of the river. And he... He told what he saw. There was nobody on the left side. All of it was gathered up on the right side. He said you just, he, he was told to just fulfill his orders. Didn't matter where the target really was. This is what you're to do. And it was things like that that just went on. And I don't need to bore you with other details, but it was a crazy war. 
It also began to have such an impact on my nation, the United States, it began to create all kinds of tension and the 60s themselves were just crazy times. I mean, we were still recovering from the assassination of our president, John F. Kennedy. We were going to be dealing with the assassination of John Kennedy in the late 60s and even Martin Luther King. Racism was at an all-time high. There was all kinds of tension, not just out on the war zone, but now it began to filter into our society and our nation. 1967 was a pivotal year, and it was a terrible year in many ways, but it was also a year when something else began to happen that became a worldwide phenomenon. It began in 1967, the Jesus movement and Jesus revolution began. It began in three places almost simultaneously in 1967. That Jesus movement began and it got its roots from Seattle. There was a small group that began to gather together in Seattle. Another group began to gather together in San Francisco, right down from the Haight-Ashbury district. And another group began to gather and see God do some supernatural things in Redondo Beach, Southern California, just a few miles from Los Angeles International Airport. And that was my stomping grounds, Redondo Beach, Hermosa, Torrance, those beaches were the beaches that I hung out at. In 1967, in Redondo Beach, Bethel Tabernacle started to have a real genuine move of God. It, it was amazing, really, how it began. Pastor Stinas in Redondo Beach had pastored this little church of Bethel Tabernacle for a lot of years. And uh, it wasn't a big church. It was a small church. And he would preach his messages mostly to the same people every Sunday, people that had been with him for many years. It was an older crowd, but not only were they a little older in age, they had really lost the fire. If they had ever had it, I don't know. But at this point in their history, there was no passion and no fire for Jesus in this church. But there was in the heart of this pastor... He described how he would drive through Redondo Beach and he would see young people in Redondo Beach and see them in the streets. Something was happening in Southern California. People were coming from all over the nation, hitchhiking, finding their way somehow to get to Southern California to, for what? To hopefully find a life, but they weren't finding what they had hoped for. And a lot of these young people that were coming hoping for something to happen, they found themselves living in the streets. They found themselves without jobs. They found themselves having to prostitute, pimp, do drugs. They were doing drugs and selling drugs. Every kind of vice was going on in the, in the streets of Redondo and Hermosa in this region of Southern California. And it wasn't just happening there. This was happening many places. But that's the frame of reference that I have to give you. This is what was going on. In, in, my, in my experience. Well, Pastor Stinas, he'd drive through town and he'd see these young people and he said, 
He said, my heart would just go out. I'd cry out to God, God, there has to be some answer and some help for these young people. God, send some help and send some answers. You know, you got to be certain when you pray a prayer like that, that you're ready. Because oftentimes you pray something like that, and next thing you know, you the one that God sends. <laughs> and Pastor Stenis described how one day in 1967, a young man came into his service on Sunday morning. He said it was a regular church service. A gathering of the typical fossils was, uh, was taking place. I don't say that because of age. I say that because a fossil is not just old, but a fossil is something that had life, but there's no current detectable life whatsoever. And so I affectionately refer to his crowd as the fossils. Uh, don't be harsh. It's, it's just a term. But he said on this particular service morning, he said a young man came in, the, the, the entrance to the sanctuary was at the very back like it is here. It was a long, longer, slender, narrower building. And... and uh, Breck Stevens came in the back, made his way down towards the front. There was plenty of room up front. And he sat down. He was a strung out heroin addict, long hair, dirty, had not bathed in who knows how long, barefoot. And he came in and sat down in church. And he heard this message, one that Brother Stenis would have preached in those days, like he always preached, the love of Jesus and the goodness of God and that God wants every person born again. And like he would say every Sunday, he would offer for anybody here to give their life to Jesus. And that morning he did exactly the same thing in this service. It was like any other service there except for the fact that this young man wanted to make Jesus the Lord of his life. Pastor Stina said that he walked over and took him by the hand and prayed a prayer with him and led him to the Lord. He said, I got him filled with the Holy Spirit. He began speaking in tongues and God delivered him from a heroin addiction all at the altar that morning. Glory to God. Well, at the end of all this prayer and this power, man, that's real power. At the end of all of this brick said to Pastor Stenis, he said, are you guys going to meet like this again anytime soon? You know, it was just church, but, you know, Breck maybe didn't even know where he was. We don't know what he knew. <laughs> Stenis said, yeah, we're going to have a service again. I don't, and I don't know which one. It might have been that very night. But he told him when the next service was going to happen. And uh, Breck said, well, good. He said, I've got some people, friends of mine, they need exactly this and I'm going to go talk to him, and I'm going to bring him. He left that service, and whenever the next service was, here came Breck with eight other people. Nine of them had all piled in the same vehicle. I'm not sure anyone knew where that vehicle came from exactly <laughs> or who owned it, but they all piled into it, and they all came to church, and they all had a very similar look. They were all pretty strung out. They were all street people now. They had been living that drugged out, dropped out, 
stoned out life. And they all came in and they sat up towards the front. And that service, Pastor Stenus just gave a simple message like he always would. And seven of those eight young people gave their life to Jesus in that service. And they, each one of them, got filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in tongues, and were delivered from their addiction right there that morning at the altar. Glory to God. Ooh, it was on now. Something was starting at Bethel Tabernacle that absolutely began to rock not just Redondo Beach, but it began to move across the nation. And almost simultaneously, other things began to spring up. But God began something, even some of the news magazines of the day. Look Magazine used to be a magazine in those days. And they had a front page article on the Jesus Revolution, as did Time Magazine and many. But in Look Magazine, they really deemed Bethel Tabernacle as the birthplace of the Jesus movement. Young people began to get saved by the hundreds. They began to filter into this church and some of these guys getting saved at Bethel, they began to take it out to the streets because that's where they had it, that's where they needed it, and that's where they were taking it. And they took it to the streets. Glory to God. Now, look, not everything they did was really probably the model of the way to handle things. There were some, I'm sure, activities that were not church-sanctioned approaches to evangelism. One of them that I, I recall them talking about, uh, Vic and I, we, we didn't make Bethel our home church, but we visited there. It wasn't until 71 that we started dropping in on Bethel, and by then, man, they were cranking. It was wild. But we fit right in. We loved it. But somewhere in there, we remember it was, it, they had a strategy for evangelism. Some of them got together apparently, and they decided what they would do is they were going to evangelize Pacific Coast Highway, the highway that runs right through Redondo Beach and goes right up the coast. It's a four-lane stop-and-go traffic kind of situation as it goes through the city of Redondo Beach. The avenues are there that, uh, you know, uh, high traffic and lots of people, and they felt like, I guess this would be a good idea. And so they, they devised a plan for evangelism. They would meet out. They met out there close to, not too far from Bethel Tabernacle, and I don't know how many it was, but they divided up into two teams. One was the runners. You guys, this team, you guys will be the runners. And this group over here, they would be the blockers. <laughs> and so here was the plan. You get the plan. Here was the plan. The blockers would rush across Pacific Coast Highway and they would make a human chain across four lanes of traffic. They're blocking every, everybody on Pacific Coast Highway. And as soon as all of the blockers got in place and the cars were screeching to a halt, the runners would begin their, their run. They would run in between the cars, throwing tracks in. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. While people are screaming, I'm get on the road, you know. <laughs> and when they had victimized enough people, they would motion to the blockers, and the blockers would let the traffic flow again. 
when the traffic had cleared out, the blockers came back out. And they blocked traffic again for a new few miles of, well, probably wasn't that far right then, but for new victims. The runners would do their job. The blockers would let them go. And they went on like this for hours until the police came. It may not have been hours. They just said it was a long time. When the police came, the blockers also became the runners. <laughs> and they scattered. Redondo didn't really know exactly what to do with the evangelism tactics of Bethel Tabernacle. They were trying their best. At one point, city council got together. They, they thought maybe if they were to ban Bibles from the beach, that would help because on a regular basis... Bethel Tabernacle Evangelism Teams, which was not an official title, it was just a bunch of them, old stoners, just barely, barely conscious, but now loving Jesus, man, they'd all descend on the beach with their Bibles, and they'd preach the gospel to anybody there, they'd hammer them with the Bible, they'd tell them how they're going to hell, they were a rough crowd. <laughs> and Redondo Beach thought, well, maybe if we ban Bibles, we can stop it. Of course, they couldn't ban Bibles. That didn't work out. But they tried various things because there was various tactics going on. They didn't really know what to do. One of the other stories I recall was how one of the young Christians and a smaller guy maybe in stature, several of them had gone out onto the Redondo Beach Pier. There's some businesses out there and then people fish off the end of the pier and all this. And, and uh, so they'd gone to evangelize Redondo Beach Pier. And so this one guy, apparently this... This Christian fellow, he found kind of a big guy to talk to about the Lord, a big heathen, sinner guy. And as the story was told, he, he got in this guy's face telling him, saying, you need Jesus, you're going to hell. And, and the, the big sinner guy's backing up, backing up, and he gets to the rail at the very end of the pier, and there's nowhere to back up to, you know. It's just water down below. And the Christians got him there, man. He's wagging his finger all over at him and <laughs> telling him who knows what. And finally, this sinner, he just, he just couldn't take it anymore. So he just picked this little guy up and threw him over the pier. <laughs> <laughs> Splash, how big deal. The guy lived. But uh, they were wild. By the time Vicky and I came along and started coming to this church, each of us, we had our own history. I'll give you just a little insight to it. But by the time we came in 1971, man, this place was jammed out. As it started to fill up back in the 60s, let me just rewind slightly here. After those young people started to come and the church started to fill up and something was clearly happening... Not everybody was happy about what was happening. The fossils apparently got together to talk about the problem. And the chief fossil decided he wanted to talk to the pastor on behalf of all fossils that were in the church. So Pastor Stenus met with the chief fossil who said, Pastor, we fossils have been talking. <laughs> no, I'm sure he didn't say that. But <clears throat> we've been talking. And you know... Uh, we're concerned about what's happening here at our church. We love our church, and we've, 
We've actually put a lot of money into this church. We've put nice carpet in the church. We've spent a lot of money on some nice seating for people as they come to the church. And these young people are coming. They've got no money. They're dirty. They stink, most of them. And we don't like it. And so we've decided, Pastor, that you've got to do something here. This has to stop. Either these young people stop coming, either they go or we go. Well, you've got to appreciate the position that Pastor Stenis is in. He's talking to the guy that maybe represents the only legal money that's being made by anybody attending his church. And whether we like it or not, there's a business side to any ministry, and you got to at least consider the consequences of what we're talking about here. So Pastor Stenis, he took a moment with the chief fossil, and he said, but, uh, you know, look what's happening here with these young people. God's, God's getting them saved, and they're, they're getting delivered from drugs, and and God's going to work on them. He'll clean them up. That's not our job, man, but God will work on them. And they'll get jobs and they'll, they'll get meaningful employment and become a, a, a vital part of society and of this church. And he said, I just want you to know, and I want all of you to know, I'm really going to miss you guys around here. <laughs> and he left the conversation. Well, the fossils were true to their threat, and they all left, every one of them. And no doubt took their money with them. But you know what God does? God just starts to jam this place out. And now they can't just have church on Sunday and midweek. Now they start a Saturday night, and then they start a Friday night. And by the time Vicki and I got there in 1971, they were having church every night of the week. And they were jammed out every night of the week. And they were singing these songs, scripture songs, and there were tambourines, which is a worship leader's worst nightmare, is tambourines in the, in the congregation, you know, because you never know what's going to happen there. And there's various ideas of rhythm and melody and beat. But they didn't care, man. They were just shouting praise to God. The church was jammed out. And by the time we got, there was more hair than I'd ever seen in one building. This was the day when hair was the big deal. It was hair, man. Hair was everywhere. It's still important, actually. It is, you know. You know, turn gray, don't turn loose. But... Uh, but God was moving. Something else happened, though, in 1967 before I move on from that particular moment because for me personally, 1967 was a tough year. That was the year that my dad took his life. I was 13 years old. And so, you know, while I understood that he didn't do that to me, it did leave some gaps in my life. It just left me at a deficit, and I was already in the drug scene. But now this just sent me way further down the rabbit hole. And it got a lot darker for me personally. 
Now, you wouldn't have known it maybe on the outside. Well, you would have, knowing that I wasn't a Christian. But, you know, how you do, you just go on with life. You just figure out how to just try to manage. And so, for me, it was just uh, medicate and listen to rock and roll. And at this point, of course, I'm going to church. Or not church, I'm going to school. I'm still in school. But uh, I'm not paying a great deal of attention. I mean, school, my school days at that point were just not good days for me. I mean, I was there, but I wasn't there. You know, I was like traveling the universe on a pretty regular basis. And while I was there at the, at the school, oftentimes it was a universal kind of thing for me in, in those days. So that left gaps. I just didn't get everything they were talking about and really didn't care. It was, a, it was not important. It was entertaining, but it just wasn't important. I mean, I was just traveling. It was like when I first saw that Star Wars movie after I'd been saved a long time. You remember the first one, 1977? The first Star Wars movie, which was the fourth episode. How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you don't know what I'm talking about? How many of you really don't care about this part of the whole message? Well, for the uninitiated, there was a movie called Star Wars in 1977. If you don't know about it, you've been living in a hole. But... Uh, I just remember as now I've been saved and walking with Jesus for a long time, but in 1977 this movie comes out and I see it and there was a particular scene I remember. It was on the planet Tantooine. And some of you will remember the barroom scene on the planet Tantooine. And there was a lot of really bizarre looking critters in there and for some reason when I first saw it I thought, you know, this looks familiar. <laughs> this has a strange familiarity about it. And Certainly it wasn't, but uh, anyway. So in 1967, I started further down that rabbit hole, and, and for the next few years, for me, it was just drugs and rock and roll. During those years, there was a lot of the anti-war movement, a lot of the hippie life was coming to light, trouble in a variety of ways, the war in Vietnam still taking place, but it was in 1970 that things shifted in the war of Vietnam for us because it was in 1970 that that war came into our own shores in Ohio at Kent State University when our own military soldiers opened fire on college students and four were killed. That iconic picture of Jeff Miller, 20 years old, lying dead on the ground, uh, at Kent State meant the war now was not just on a foreign place, but it was in our own land and was with our own people. This was a very confusing time. I wasn't particularly anti-war. I wasn't for it, that's for sure. But I wasn't deep enough to really think it through one way or the other. For me, I was far too shallow at this point. I, it was still just the drugs and rock and roll. I had friends going off to war. Now, for me, I, had, I still have somewhat of a warm spot in my heart for President Richard M. Nixon. Now, I realize that sounds odd with all of the things that we could say about Richard Nixon, but for me, he was the guy that stopped the draft just as my number was coming up. So for me... Richard Nixon was used by God. (laughs) 
But it was during these dark days for me and against this backdrop of this Jesus movement that I really came into my own darkest time and things had to change for me. Without taking you into a whole lot of detail, I think I've probably given you more detail than you need already. But my dad had told me when I was just 12 years old, he said, I don't, Dennis, don't ever start with marijuana because it'll lead to other things and you'll end up taking heroin. You'll be at a party someday and they'll, they'll bring some heroin, you'll take it and you'll end up a drug addict and it'll wreck your life. He said, don't start. Well, I'd already started. I don't know if he already knew or not. He never said. But he gave me that warning. And yet, here I was, a young guy, 12 years old, early adolescence. And you know what happens at adolescence. It happens to nearly everyone at adolescence. Something, there's a phenomenon that takes place at adolescence. It's, it's like the impartation of total knowledge. <laughs> because an adolescent needs to hear nothing. You don't have to tell me that. I already know all that. I know everything. I don't need to be here this. And I just blew off what Dad told me. It just seemed corny to me. I, that's not going to happen to me, and that's what they all say. Now I fast forward to 1971, very beginning of 1971, and I was at that party that my dad had nearly prophesied about. We were all getting stoned on who knows what. But I would never take heroin, ever. That was the line. It's pathetic to have that as the only line. But that was the line for me. And no doubt it came from the conversation that my dad had with me. But now some guys went off. They went off to get something. They didn't go off to get heroin, but they came back with some heroin. And, oh, hey, you know, we're all together and why not? And here you go. The next day when I was at home in bed and opened my eyes first thing in the morning, I had two ideas, two thoughts hit me almost simultaneously, one right after the other. The first thought I had when I opened my eyes was I want to do that again right now. That's how, that's how strong that was for me. I want to do that again right now. And on the heels of that thought flashing through my head, I could nearly hear the voice of my dad telling me what he had told me a number of years earlier when I was 12 years old. Don't start because you'll be at that party. I had been at that party. It was last night. And it shook me. I laid in bed and nearly shook as I laid there over what I was realizing. I was about to descend so far down the rabbit hole, I may never come back. And I knew it. And it was there that I said, this is my wake-up call. Something's changing. And I knew right then that this Jesus movement that was taking place, that I didn't know a whole lot about, although I'd gone to church as a young guy some. I knew enough church things to know what that was talking about. But I said to myself that day, I said, I have got to find out about Jesus and I've got to make him or got to make my life fit into what he's all about. And I didn't really know what it was going to look like or what it meant. But it was just a, uh, the next day I was together, I got together with my other buddy, 
stoner, dropout, space cadet, whose name was also Dennis. I said, Dennis, we got we to gotta change something here. I mean, we'd get together because we were not only, we not only were stoners together and with the crowd we were running with, but we were entrepreneurial in all of this, and it was helping us along the way. And so I, but I thought to myself, something's got to change here, Dennis. We got we to gotta go after this Jesus. We got to find out about what this really is all about. And Dennis said to me, he says, yeah, we need, we need to find out about Jesus. Far out. I said, we do. I said, so here's the deal. And I just took charge. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to buy any more stuff. We're going to use what we have. <laughs> I did. It's so sad. It is. But that's what, we're going to use what we have. I mean, I was raised to be frugal. And uh, ways not one, not, you know. <laughs> so we're going to use what we have, but we're not going to buy anything more. And that's it. We're going after Jesus. He says, yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. That's what we'll do. Want a joint? <laughs> yeah. So we... <laughs> All right, I, you know, I'm messing with you. I mean, I'm not proud of this, but this is the way it went. I'm not making it up. It's ridiculous when I look back, but that's, you know, that's how screwed up you get. So it was a few weeks for Dennis and me. We had... We had a fair supply, and it was <laughs> a few weeks passed, but I'm seeing, you know, we're still on. It's, it's running low. We're going for Jesus. And I'm already talking to the Lord. Lord, you know, I'm, 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 I'm coming, man. I'm, this is, it's all about you, you know. <laughs> well, nobody was telling me anything. I didn't have any input. I didn't have any place to go. I didn't have anybody around me telling these Jesus people that were going to my school. They didn't care what was going on for me. They didn't even talk to guys like me. So I'm doing what I can. So finally, one day comes and Dennis, we kind of, we'd lay out what we had left, you know, and it was kind of, we'd just talk about it. And suddenly, Dennis, where did this come from? We didn't have, this wasn't in the pile. He said, oh, no, man, but this is, this is Colombian hash, man. There was nothing like this, man. And it was, dun, dun, dun. he went on, on. And I said, so you bought, some, you bought more stuff. Oh, yeah. He said, you got to try this. This is amazing. I said, no, we agreed on something. And it was at that point that I cut Dennis off. I mean, I didn't know what else to do, so you out. And that's when I dropped everything. I dropped Dennis. I had already dropped nearly all my friends I wasn't listening to Black Sabbath anymore. Things were turning. It was slow, and I'm, I'm not proud of how slow it was, but I was making a shift, and I started looking for a church to go to. I didn't know where to go. From my point of view, they were all about the same, uh, you know, different crowds and different people, but, you know, church is church, so I just went to one close by. What you find out right away is not all churches are created equal. I went into that church and I sat towards the back because that's closest to the door. You know what I'm talking about. And you can, you can slide out real quick if you really need to. And that seemed good to me. So I sat toward the back and I looked up to the front. It was, it was long, skinny church also. And, 
And some denomination, I don't even know what denomination it was, I've, but I sat there and I listened to the guy up front. I guess he was the minister. He didn't talk from the Bible. He didn't say anything from Scripture that I recall. He read from the newspaper. I remember that. I don't know what he was talking about. Never did figure out what he was talking about. Now, I granted, I was still somewhat fuzzy in these days. My head hadn't quite come back. But uh, uh, this wasn't it. This wasn't it for me. I'd start to look at other churches and some churches, they didn't want my kind of person coming to their church. You know, I was a long hair, stoner look still, and I mean, T-shirt, jeans, some kind of funky shoes. And, you know, in those days, if I was going to dress up, I'd put on socks, you know, and that's, uh, so I'm sure as I would go to church, I had my socks on too. But, uh, and there was places, you know, it was the attitude was like, you know, why, and so like, why are you here today? (laughs) And it's like, Hey, pal, if you got to ask me, I have no idea why I came to this church. <laughs> and so I began to look. And this Jesus movement, as I said, was, was happening. But I didn't know anything really about where it was happening. I came across a, a church on a Saturday. And there was one guy in the flower bed working putting flowers in the flower bed of this new church. I'm sure I'd been past this church before, but I'd, I'd never seen it like I saw it that day. It was a brand new building, and this man's putting flowers in that flower bed, and I walked up to him to introduce myself. I said, can you tell me about this church? And he said, I sure can. He said, in fact, I've got to go get some flowers at the nursery uh, to add to what we've got, so why don't you just ride with me? in my truck, and we'll just get flowers. I'll tell you about the church. I said, well, that sounds fine. So I got in in his truck. He introduced himself to me as a guy named Ed Dufresne. Ed Dufresne was later, at this point, he was a deacon of a church. He was a carpenter. He had started a janitorial business, but he would end up with a worldwide ministry of his own called of God and powerful man. But at this stage, he was just... uh, one of the guys at the church, but he was going to tell me all about it. I remember I got in his truck, and we drove off towards the nursery, and he started talking about all of the things that I had no clue what he was talking about. I had no idea. He wasn't really telling me about the church. He got to talking about the Holy Ghost. I knew nothing about the Holy Ghost. The only ghost I knew anything about was Casper, the friendly ghost. (laughs) That's the truth. That's the only ghost. I had heard of, but he's talking about the Holy Ghost. I was sure it wasn't Casper. <laughs> really, I mean, I, but I do remember as we drove along, I, I'd look over at him. He's driving along. He's talking away about all oh, whatever it was. I had no clue what he was talking about. But I remember looking at him, and, and I was so impressed. He was so, he was so alive with all this. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm saying, and... Okay, my vocabulary was limited at this point. I, I do remember saying to myself, wow. <laughs> this, this is far out. <laughs> those few words covered a, a lot of things for me in those days and came in handy a lot. But uh, th- this was amazing. I didn't even know what it was that was amazing. I know now. Man, I... I was, I was hearing things about God that was anointed and alive. 
I'm thinking, man, I got to come to this church. So the next day, Sunday, I showed up, had my socks on <laughs> and everything else, you know. And I showed up for church. Ed was a door greeter. He greeted me at the door as I came in. And when he saw me, he shook my hand. In fact, he shook my arm. In fact, he shook my whole body. Dennis, I'm so glad you're here today. And he went off, off on me, and I was glad I was there too if I survived the greeting. And man, I remember walking into this church and I didn't know anything about what any of them were doing. I was the only guy that looked like me. They were all pretty much church-looking folks, as I've come to understand how church folks can look. Looks a lot like we look right now, a lot of us. They were just church folks. And I wasn't. But nobody hassled me. People welcomed me. I was, I, I was immediately knowing that I was where I belonged. I'd found a home. I'd found a place. Well, I began to grow there in that church. And in the next few weeks, other ex-stoners like myself started coming to this church. And God began to do something at the Harbor Church. This is where I met Vicki. She came in probably July. I came in March probably, and she probably came in July. This is where another guy came, a guy that I became very close friends with, a guy named Jeff, Jeff Agers, who now is being used by God all over the world himself. And God began to turn this darkness in my life into something that was alive, something that was rich. I began to go into this church and I began to discover the things of God and realize that I was welcome there. Periodically, after I met Vicki and, you know, we were, yeah, after I met Vicki, <laughs> we'd go down to Bethel Tabernacle even because, you see, if church wasn't happening at the church we were at, we wanted in on something and we wanted in it every day. I was, I'd been getting stoned every day. I'd been traveling the universe every day, and I'd been doing it for a while. So now that I'm in Jesus, I don't need this just on the weekend. This isn't a Friday or a Saturday deal for me. This is an everyday deal. This isn't just an experience or an event. This is the life that I now had discovered I was going to live and breathe every instant I was alive. I'd found what was worth living for. Glory to God. We'd find if we'd go to the Bethel and, oh, it was wild at times. It really was, and we just loved it. I mean, you never knew what might happen at Bethel. I mean, by this time, Breck Stevens is now doing the preaching. And on the midweek nights that we would drop in, place would be packed. Wild things might happen. You never knew what would take place. One night, they had a door towards the back, and we, we had got there where we were sitting halfway back, and there was a door off to the side, and at one point, the door slung open, and here was a kind of big guy with a lot of hair. His eyes were about this big. He had probably been on speed for three days, and he just started to cuss the whole church out. 
I mean, he is letting the whole church have it. Well, they just got a few tambourines going and they sang a little louder, but the ushers at the back, I, I glanced back. Well, they had ushers, but they had big ushers. These, these guys, they were bouncers maybe other times of the week, but at church, they're the ushers. Well, they disappeared from the back. And then in a moment, the fellow at the side door, he disappeared. The ushers had him. In a moment, I looked back, and the ushers had him all right. There he was, this guy now seated between the two ushers who each had a hand on his shoulder while he sat there. <laughs> oh, I'm sure today there'd be litigation and lawsuits of some sort, but they had, they had drug him to church. <laughs> and what's he going to do? He going to call the police? No, he's been running from the police for years. <laughs> So there's a certain advantage to that sort of situation. <laughs> now, the habit at Bethel in those days was that at the end of any service, at the end of service, everybody at church, everybody, the announcement came, everybody, this is your church, church is dismissed, we come to the altar, we pray for an hour in tongues. Every service. So Breck would preach a while, and then they'd pray for people, and... That was after a lot of worship, and, and, and then we're going to have an hour of prayer at the altar in tongues. And here everybody would come, and I mean the altar is jammed out. Everybody just praying and shouting and worshiping and praying in the Spirit, and, and everybody kind of doing their thing at the altar. It was wild. Man, I loved it. But on this particular time, I was curious what was going to happen to the guy, the guy that the ushers had. And I, so I watched. You know, the Bible says watch and pray. So <laughs> I was praying and watching. <laughs> well, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it worked out. And uh, so the ushers, they, they were helping this fellow come to the altar. <laughs> they were, they were, there were black heel marks, I think, behind him all the way. But they were helping him down to the altar. And then when they got down to the front, they... They started to help him get to his knees. Oh, he was fighting it too. But the ushers had him, man, and they were just helping him find his way down. And when finally one knee hit the ground, this fellow just melted, cried out to Jesus, Oh, Jesus. Help me. Got born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, delivered right there. Glory to God. Vic and I realized that this was our life now. She'd come out of the same kind of drug confusion that I had. We didn't know each other in school. We went to the same school. It was a big school. We didn't know each other. But we'd come out of a lot of the same stuff. Now, it was really all about Jesus. Young people started to come to the church we were at. We started to have our own ideas about evangelism. They were a little more church-sanctioned. We didn't do the runners and blocker approach. <laughs> but man, we, we knew this. We knew that what Jesus was really all about was taking what we had and taking it to the streets, taking it into the places and into the people. 
I'd go back to the parties, only I wasn't tempted. I was not tempted one time to get stoned. I went back to the parties, talked to them about Jesus. They finally asked me to quit coming. Would you stop coming? You got to stop coming. I said, what do you mean? You know, so you're wrecking every party. You just talk about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I was, I was an irritation. But, you know, well, you don't have a lot of sense as to what to do, but at least you got the zeal. Man, I was, I was lit up. We just went talk about Jesus. We were for real a Jesus people. We were, it had been, oh, peace, love, you know, people where, where there was no peace and no love, but, you know, summer of love, 69, all that stuff. Uh, now it was all one way. It's all about Jesus, man. And we were just finding out about the goodness of God. We didn't know anything about the covenants and about the anointing, about standing on the word, but we began to discover it. We began to find it out. The reason I'm taking you through all of that is to give you a very short message. So I'm about to begin my message now. <laughs> Somebody went, oh, no. <laughs> because we're living in very much a mirrored time from the late 60s and early 70s. I see it, I see it all the time. And while many of the details, certainly the names, and some of the issues are different, the spirit of it is almost identical. The same kind of confusion that is, was sweeping across nations in those days is sweeping across nations in these days. The uncertainty is just the same. The racism is spiking back to a, a high. It is in my nation. I don't know about here. But I think there's a worldwide division it is a spirit of division. This is what Jesus said would come, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. And that's what we hear constantly now, all the time. We are entering into those days that are dark days, the days that the prophet Isaiah talked about. He said to you and me in Isaiah 60, he said, rise and shine your light has come, darkness is on the earth, and deep darkness is on people. Those are the days that we're in. Those are the days that Isaiah was prophesying about, the dark days. And yet, for you and me, these are not designed to be dark days. These are designed to be days of the glory of God in our life, where the simple truth of who Jesus is... Now with the understanding of the covenant that God has made, what the anointing will do, what the authority of God's word is all about, how you can trust and believe and how you can receive because of God's grace and the application of your faith. You can stand in places and see things that other generations have never seen. Those are the days that we are in. And I've asked God to ignite something inside of you in this service. There was a fire that was burning in us because we knew Jesus. We knew what he had delivered us from. We knew that uh, Jesus was our answer even to questions we didn't know to ask. And that's what we were after. We wanted the presence of God. Man, if they didn't have church going, we'd get together and just, if we didn't go down to Bethel, we'd just get some of us and meet up at the church there in Harbor City and uh, have prayer time together and worship the Lord. 
We wanted the presence of God in our life. We wanted to feel that presence. We wanted to walk with Him. And man, we just seek the Lord and pray in the Spirit and sing songs and didn't care what it sounded like or what we looked like. What was important is that we were in the presence of Jesus. We were for real Jesus people. And the reason I keep saying that is because I'm thoroughly convinced we are entering into a brand new awakening and a Jesus revolution right now. What began in the streets in the book of Acts is going to end in the streets in our day. All right, let me try to come in for a landing. I, I have no idea how to stop this. But I've got to give you one last. Can you take just one more thing? All right, everybody say it's after 12 o'clock. Just say that. All right, now we all know. <laughs> the Lord told me to read this to you from Isaiah chapter 43. I'm going to use the new century version just because I can. But in Isaiah 43, verse 18, the Lord says, forget what happened before and don't think about the past. Look at the new thing that I am going to do. It is already happening. Say it out loud. It's already happening. Child of God, it is already happening. He says, it's already happening. Don't you see it? He said, I will make a road in the desert and I will make rivers in the dry land. Those are the days that we're living in where we understand that Satan is not attacking us because of our history. Satan is attacking us because of our destiny. There is a future. There is a plan. There is an anointing inside of every single one of us. There is the reality of Jesus. There is the power of God. There is the assignment. And what God gave Elijah as an assignment, Elisha came along and picked up that anointing and walked in that very anointing. Elijah's the one, the older prophet, he's the one that went up in the chariot. That had to be a sight. But Elisha's the one that picked up that mantle, the cloth that fell from that chariot as Elijah went up. That garment fell to the ground and that young prophet picked it up and he cried a cry that just is so big even today. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? When he shouted that shout, he slapped the Jordan River with that garment and the Jordan River parted again. <laughs> that Jordan River, it parted ever so often. It didn't know which way to run. <laughs> and that prophet went off into his calling. And that is a picture for you and me. We are picking up the anointing, not of Elijah really, even though he talks about the spirit and power of Elijah. What we've picked up is the anointing that was on Jesus himself. That's really what's happening in our day. And you have to make some determinations as to what kind of believer you are going to be in these days. 
I said that in one of the other services, but I feel this is such an important thing for all of us. I'm having to come to these conclusions myself. What kind of believer am I going to be in these days? You have to answer that. Are we going to be mediocre? Are we going to be churchgoers? Are we going to be weekend believers? What kind of believers, what kind of Christians are we? Or are we going to handle this anointing, walk in this liberty, refuse the darkness, declare never when Satan presents us with his threats. I'll never enter that, but I'll walk in the power of God. God's raising up people, you and me, that he can use in these days. And with a simple decision, you move out of being a churchgoer into being a tool in the hand of God, a believer that God will speak through. God will pray through. This is amazing, but God actually initiates prayers for us to pray so that he will move on behalf of those prayers. That's how he's designed it. We have that authority in that place. So no longer are we looking at church like a consumer, somebody that is here only to receive. We are looking at church as a place for us to revitalize, rise up so that we can be the distributors that God's called us to be. I did something last night to those that were here and I commissioned people into service. Some of you took that commission. How many of you took that commission personal? I commissioned you into service. I believe that's the Lord talking to all of us. But today I want to pray something for you because I believe God, and just to use terms that are familiar with me and things I've talked to you about, I believe God has called you also to be a Jesus people. It's all about Jesus. And that's going to become more and more evident. It's all about His plan, His purpose his calling, his love, his deliverance, the price he paid, but the, the power that he gave. And that's what I want to pray for you today. Not that you would only be a consumer of the things of God, but that you would be a vessel that God uses. If you want that, I want you to stand to your feet. Glory to God. We're in a new revolutionary time. I know that with all of my heart. I know that we're in a time that things are looking as dark as ever from a particular points of view. But at the same time, we have answers and we have power on levels that we've never realized before. But we get it now. And that's going to grow and increase inside of anybody that'll take it. How many of you will take it? Come on, if that's you, lift your hand up before God. I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for every man and woman in this audience. I pray that this is a Jesus moment, that this is a pivotal time, that this is a brand new place that each one of us stand, a place of victory, a place of deliverance, a place where our past will not hold us, 
but where we will walk in the power of the destiny that we've been called to. Father, I pray for these men and women that are here today. I pray for a fresh fire to ignite on the inside of every single one of us, a fresh fire that is bigger than the elements of darkness that have stood against us so that we are the voices, we are the hands, we're the containers, we're the vessels and the vehicles of the anointing of God. God, here am I. Say it again. Here am I. Here am I. Use me. Use me. Do you mean that? I believe you do. Father, I pray for every one of these people that these are days of being used. These are days for that fire to go to the streets, to go into the house, to go into the job, to go into the market, to go into what we're involved in where you, God, are showing yourself strong through every single one of us. Father, that's our desire. That's what we crave. That's why we're in the church. That's why we are the church. Father, let it be so in every single one of us in Jesus' name. Do you receive that? Yes. Do you believe that? Yes. Say amen if you do. Yes. Amen means so be it. Yes. It means me too. Yes. It means I'm in. Yes. And I'm all in. Yes. Glory to God. Are you all in? Yes. Say it out loud. I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm going to go ahead and take you at your word. Glory to God. I'm expecting that fire to just happen on the inside of, of you next time we come together. Uh, well, I won't be here. Next time church meets, some of you are going to drag some people with you. Now, don't hurt them. Just help them. But see, that's what our days are all about. And that's what this victory and message of faith and the good things of God is all about. It's not about just living better. It is about that. But it's about that multiplying factor that God has us here to influence. And you are an influencer. See, some people, their head just rocks when you say that. They don't feel like that at all. But the real truth is that the reason you're here not just in this church, the reason you're still alive is because God has you to bring influence. That's what it's all about. That we're influencing people for the kingdom, that we're influencing places for the kingdom, that we're influencing even, now this gets wild, but we're even influencing the spirit realm with our prayers and with the authority God has given us because we're here to influence things. So your days ahead are bright. The days ahead are light. The days ahead are built to be glorious in the things of God. And in spite of the kinds of pressures the devil's tried to put at you, just remember, none of that's about your history. It's all about your destiny. It's about the fact that God has plans for you and Satan wants to do everything possible to derail your life so that you'll never stand in it. But Satan doesn't have that power. And we're sure not going to give it to them. Can you say amen to that? Yes. Amen. Glory to God. Did you receive something today? Yes. Come on, thank the Lord for it. Would you do that? Yes. Glory to God. It's a new day and new things have come into your life and mine. Praise the Lord.